Hey, what's up? I'm Anthony. And I'm Dan. And we are J&J Missions, spreading the gospel by all means, one soul at a time. We give live talks, we make YouTube videos, and you can find us all over social media. And as you probably figured, we have a podcast. Whether we're giving spiritual tips, deliberating about current events, or talking saints and devotionals, we want to bring the Catholic faith to you in a totally orthodox, yet relatable, down-to-earth way. If you want to support us, head over to our website, www.jmjmissions.com. Hello, hello. We are back with another JMJ Missions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really want to thank our listeners because, as we've said before, it's kind of like you're just hanging out with us. You're our friend, and we really appreciate that you've tuned in. There's so many things you could be listening to, so many things you'd be doing with your time, yet you're listening to a spiritual Catholic podcast with us. And again, we really appreciate it. If you want to book us for a talk, if you, you're at your church or maybe you're a DRE or you know somebody at your church, um, we do confirmation sheets and missions and all kinds of things. So feel free to head over to jmjmissions.com to book us for a talk, or you can always support us on Spotify for Podcasters, our new platform. So the topic this day is Eucharistic miracles, one of the coolest topics you could possibly think of. You know, the parish uh, parishes this year are really pushing the Eucharistic revival that was asked for by the bishops. Our church is in great need of a Eucharistic revival. I mean, you look at church attendance, it's just down year after year. Uh, all over the West, all over Europe, the U.S., Canada, and even even other parts of the world. So we clearly are not getting something when it's coming to the Eucharist. Like People do not realize how important the Eucharist is and how much it can transform your life. So we'll be talking about that. But as always, Anthony, stuff in the world segment, what you got for us? Well, first things first, uh, I like how you complimented our listeners, and I want to compliment them too. But also, I'm slightly upset with them because Mississippi still hasn't listened. It's ridiculous. Every single state. Except for Mississippi. Unacceptable. Like, what's going on in Mississippi? Yeah. Why won't they listen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If you know somebody in Mississippi... Send it to them. Send the... Yeah, share it. (laughs) Yeah, we have to get them off the board. Uh, Okay, so my real stuff in the world. It's March Madness right now. And some interesting things has happened. A 16 seed, which is very high seed. You know, it's usually a really bad team that just barely makes the tournament. They just beat a number one seed. So a really good school, like a top four school it's only the second time it's ever happened right yeah only the second time the all-time record is two wins for the 16 seeds and 151 losses wow. all, all time so it's pretty cool so my question for you is what do you think is more powerful the feeling of elation if you're the number 16 seed and you win and you upset and you go down in history as the winners and like you're the big men on campus at your tiny school <laughs> or the feeling of defeat if you're the one seed and you lost, like what, which feeling is, is stronger or is going to stick with you longer? Wow. That is a really interesting question. I think it depends on the person. I think if you are the number one seed that lost and you're a kind of person that really doesn't sweat it, that really has an optimistic view in life. This is where spirituality comes in. If you're rooted in Christ, <laughs> like Purdue lost, right? Purdue lost mm-hmm. to Fairleigh Dickinson. If you are a Purdue basketball player and your whole life pretty much revolves around D1 top-level basketball – and you just lost to Fairleigh Dickinson, I think it depends on the person. If you have Christ as your center, well, you're going to be okay. You're yeah, be okay. that's true. I mean, even if you're rooted in Christ, that's fine. But like 30 years from now, he might wake up one day and be like, all right, we lost that game. Jesus might wake up and realize he <laughs> lost the game. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right. That's true. No, of course. But if you're rooted in Christ, like, you know, you, you got, you know, you realize your life is based on other things. 
So I am going to assume. Let's assume the, this person's not rooted in Christ. Oh, well, then that's. I mean, again, it depends. Some people just have a nice personality where they're able to let things roll and just kind of bounce off them, and some people don't. <laughs> oh man, uh, I just for the sake of the argument. I'm gonna assume everybody on both teams is firmly rooted in Christ, that's and they're not all in the a case. Well, just actually, you have to do that. You have to be fair, <laughs> and they're all in a state of grace, as we know they definitely all are. <laughs> and if they all are rooted in Christ, then the people on Fairly Dickens in the 16 seed will probably be in a better mood because they're like able to just be really excited about that. Whereas if you get too discouraged, that's almost like non-Christian like. So I, in order to Make it fair. I'm going to make that blanket statement and assume everybody on both teams, their hearts are lined up the way they're supposed to be lined up. <laughs> I'm gonna the ass- end. I'm going to assume that, that they're not close to Christ. I mean, maybe they are. But if they're not, then there's all kinds of variables. There's well, nothing you I, can say. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, that's why you, like, <laughs> you ask it for yourself well, but, then. But see, but now you got to like, just make up. Would you be happier? Well, yeah, sure. I got to make up personalities because, for everybody now. Well, yeah. Well, you were making up personalities with their faith. Well, well so. Yeah. So I'm going to say, like me, if I'm on Fairleigh Dickinson, obviously I'm through the roof. But if I'm on Purdue, and I mean, I'm assuming I'm leaving Christ out of this. for Not that we should do that. <laughs> if I'm on Purdue. Definitely adding to your purgatory time yeah, right now. If I'm on Purdue, I, I'm also, I'm equally crushed. So like, I don't know which one's stronger or which one's more powerful. I was, that was a great question. And that's why I had to assume everyone is rooted in Christ. Yeah. Well, even then. Then the answer like negates itself, right? Because then, yeah, I don't. Because then yeah. you're not going to get too high or too low. I think, but that's my point: is you can get really high. I mean, not like drug high, just normal high. If you're like in a good mood, <laughs> and you have Christ, but you can't get that low because then it's like discouragement. You know what I mean? I yeah. Don't, I don't know. It, it's, there's too many variables <laughs> that you can't. How do you How do you answer that question? You know. <laughs> I think you made it more complicated than it needed. Well, to be. you know what? Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Well, just good thing I'm not on Purdue. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone from Purdue is listening to this on their basketball team, I'm very sorry to have offended you. But if you're rooted in Christ, you'll be okay. I promise. Yep. <laughs> all right. That was a good one. We're going to take a quick break, and we will come back with our topic, Eucharistic Miracles. Perfect topic for this year and this time of the year. Do not go Okay, so our topic today, a really awesome one, a classic, Eucharistic miracles. You know, the Eucharist really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, as we mentioned in our previous podcast, maybe like five podcasts ago, five sessions ago, uh, Source and Summit. So if you want any extra information on the Eucharist, along with this one, you can listen to that one. Uh, But right now, we're going to focus just on five Eucharistic miracles that have happened throughout the church's history, most of them recently, actually. And uh, what we can take from that, and like what God's trying to say through each one, how that helps our faith. Uh, two of these miracles, really it's kind of six miracles, and two of them uh, are actually personal. One's a personal story of mine from a family member of mine, and uh, also some experiences that uh, we've had on retreats or uh, at our schools, at my school at least. So um, they're really going to be interesting. Uh, so we'll take you through all five, and again, what the Lord um, is trying to say through each one, or at least what we think he's trying to say. Uh, okay, so... The first one, uh, the first miracle that really showcases and confirms that Jesus really is present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is probably the most often cited or oft cited <laughs> Eucharistic miracle of all time. That is the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano in Italy. 
So here is the tradition. Here's what apparently happened in Lanciano. There was a priest. He was walking to uh, a town of Lanciano to celebrate Mass, uh, a church that was run by the Basilian monks uh, of that area. And um, apparently he later confessed that he was actually, this is really interesting, he was doubting the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. He really was thinking, could this really be Jesus? Now this is about the 800s or 700s, I believe it was the 8th century, so about the 700s, 1300 years ago. So he's doubting that Jesus is present truly in the Eucharist, and he goes to celebrate Mass in this small church. Apparently during the consecration, everything in Mass was normal, except during the consecration, he's looking at the Eucharist, and he sees that the the Eucharistic species, the host, does not look like a normal you know, unleavened host anymore. It's actually taking on the properties of real flesh. It feels soft. It looks it looks fleshy. It does not look like like bread, but skin. And he's really freaked out at this. In fact, as he's looking at it, he's just like amazed at what's going on in front of him. Doesn't know what to say or how to react. And then he looks over at the chalice, and apparently the the wine or the what we know is the the species of the the blood, but which was, has the properties of wine. Um, he looks over, and it no longer looks like wine. It's now like bubbling over with actual dark red thick liquid that looks like blood. A few minutes later, he looks again, and it's now miraculously overflowing from the chalice and all over the altar, all over the cloths and everything like that. Apparently, everybody in the church saw what was happening as well, and they all started to react. They all started to point and shout and, you know, say it's a miracle. So after that happened, they took the Eucharistic host and the blood, and they put it on display. It was on display for 1,300 years almost in this same church in Lanciano. Later on in the 1970s, because you know what happens is skeptics come along. What do you think skeptics would say about this, Ant? Uh, they would say that they don't believe it. Right. If you're if you're in the 20th century, and this this miracle happened, you know, what, what are you going to say about this that if you're it looking was at it? planned or something. Right. Planned or... It was so long ago. Mm-hmm. It was 1,300 years ago. You're going to say, that's a legend. That didn't happen. We don't have any proof, right? That's just, that could be anything in, in that glass case over in that church. So they did tests on it in 1970, and they found out some amazing things about this host. They found out that the, the host was actually human flesh, and that the blood, which was all dried up and kept in this case, was actually human blood, blood type AB. It's always blood type AB. And get this, the, uh, the flesh still had properties of living blood. Not, not the flesh. The blood still had properties as if it was living. So the proteins in the blood or something along those lines actually showed that the blood should still be alive, yet it's 1,300 years old. That's absolutely amazing. So it's cardiac tissue, uh, fresh blood, human blood, AB, oh, and no trace of preservatives. So that's a miracle in itself that it would show properties of still being alive why do you think the lord would allow that blood to still be alive after 1200 years of being on display i think just to give us extra proof that he meant what he said in john chapter 6 verse 66 that it is actually his body and blood and you know the amazing thing is that he says like he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever and 1200 years later that blood is still alive that's amazing now for me that kind of ties into incorruptible saints you have these saints who died and uh, their bodies just never decompose, or at least decompose way slower than the laws of nature should have allowed them to, and I mean way slower. In fact, some they barely decompose at all. And you think that, like, these are little signs from God, like, yes, these people did take the Eucharist seriously, they lived a Eucharistic life, and look, their bodies never decompose, just like the flesh of the Eucharist at Lanciano 
like still was living after 1200 years so put all the skeptics to rest that's amazing that's just one of many eucharistic miracles that have happened Mm -hmm. the second eucharistic miracle and the reason i'm mentioning it second is because it's very much related to uh lanciano is buenos aires argentina now apparently two eucharistic miracles happened in the buenos aires diocese once in 1992 and once in 1996 guess who the cardinal was at the time who was in charge of buenos aires diocese bergoglio bergoglio who is pope francis pope francis Yes, the Pope himself was the Pope of this diocese. I feel like this is from the Lord for a reason. I feel like maybe this is just maybe maybe knowing that 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 Bergoglio was going to become Pope eventually. The Lord did this miracle in Buenos Aires to help you know confirm his faith in the true presence, so that he could maybe write his encyclicals and preach on it and keep that truth intact. So really cool. So what happened here was a priest was celebrating Mass. Uh, after Mass, a woman brought a Eucharistic host to him that I think she found on the ground that was not consumed. Now, what you're supposed to do with the Eucharistic host, I mean, it's Jesus. You're not supposed to just throw it out or, uh, you know, toss it away. It's, it's Christ. So you can either eat it right away or you can dispose of it in water. The priest, probably since he didn't know really where she got it from or maybe how long it was on the floor, I'm assuming, decided to dispose of it in water. So he puts it in water. He comes back to check on it. And there's a red substance just emanating from the Eucharist, just emanating from it. And he's like, not sure what this is. So he closes the door and uh, puts it back in the, you know, like puts it back wherever it was and then checks on it again a few days later. And now not only is the red substance coming from the Eucharist, it's like enveloping the entire host and it's bleeding out into the water that it's being held in. So he's naturally like really amazed by this. They have it sent, I think the diocese officially got involved, and had this sample, this liquid, coming off the Eucharist, sent to a well-known doctor who would specialize in these things, and they didn't tell him where they got the sample from. They didn't tell him what the liquid was. They just said, can you please just do an analysis on this and tell us what is this red substance? He said, I can tell you exactly what this is. He said, this is human blood. What do you think the blood type was, Ant? It was AB. AB, human blood. Blood type AB, but not only that, he took it a step further. He said, this is tissue from the human heart. It's tissue from the human heart. And even more than that, he said, this person has been tortured. Something with the way the white blood cells were intermingled with the other cells showed him that the person had been beaten around the area that the sample was taken. Are you serious? Blood type AB, again, human blood, heart tissue, someone who had been tortured. That's Jesus, and that is recent. That was 1996. We're absolutely sure of this. This wasn't that long ago. And apparently, a study done side-by-side of the Lanciano miracle from 1,200 years ago and the Argentinian miracle, apparently the blood is from the same person. You literally can't make this up. This, this is indisputable. It's, it's, um, it's really, really amazing stuff. Again, just showing that Christ really does love us, and I, I think the torture part, the fact the person was tortured, like God knew that was going to be discovered, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I'm interested to see like what an atheist would have to say about this. Like, how could you refute it? Especially if it was in 1996. Mm-hmm. And the diocese, you know, takes really special care of this. You know, the church, when I had my conversion, I thought like that the church like loved these miracles and was like, all about them. and was always promoting them. And to an extent the church is, because when there's a real miracle, the church is going to show it to people and say, look, this, this is really cool. But what I also noticed is that there are tons of people in the church and kind of rightfully so, that are really weary of miracle chasing. They don't want people going around chasing miracles just to chase them. And um, many bishops, many cardinals, many high-ranking clergy, in fact, maybe most of them, 
get extremely skeptical when they hear of a miracle. I mean, look what happened to Padre Pio. A lot of bishops, some of them were jealous of his attention. Others were just skeptical. They made him undergo tons of tests because they didn't like the attention he was getting. And they weren't sure if he was legit. So the church, especially recently, is super, super careful in how they deal with these things. Um, and before declaring that something is authentically a miracle, they go through rigorous testing. They sometimes get doctors and scientists that aren't even believers just to get their, their real confirmation of these things from people who have no bias. So I'm interested to hear what an atheist would say as well. Yeah, and I like that the church has that attitude. I think a little more uh, miracles could could be helpful, especially to the people on the outside. Um, but at a certain point, you can't only go after the miracles. It's kind of like how we had our conversions, how the miracles are what roped us in. Right. Like, if I didn't have the miracles, like, I don't know if I'm doing this podcast right now. Right. But uh, but the miracles were my jump start. It was my, my, my kickboard uh, to get, actually get into the faith. So I understand. But I think like maybe this being promoted a little a little bit more could possibly help. I think so too. And honestly, not that I'm saying I'm greater than the church or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know why it's not talked about a little more. And honestly, the media, the media, you know, the media is really not run mostly. I mean, there's some really good people in the media, but I'm gonna say venture out and say most of the media is not run with people that are supportive of Catholicism because this stuff should be all over the news. Incorruptible bodies of saints, the miracles of Padre Pio, the stigmata, Eucharistic miracles. These things should be all over the news, and they're not. They're just not. The Our Lady of Guadalupe image. I went my whole life thinking that was a painting. Mm -hmm. And then I had my conversion, looked into it, and I was like, what? Yeah. That's like the most miraculous image in the world, and there's been so many studies done about done on it, and they're, they're, they're official, and no one has any clue how to explain X, Y, and Z. The Shroud of Turin? Are you kidding me? Oh, by the way, I, I also read, you have to look this up, our, our listeners, because I haven't, I've only seen this, I think, twice, and normally I don't say things on a podcast unless I see it, like, tons and tons of times, but I heard the blood type on the Shroud of Turin is AB. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what awesome. I heard. I, I believe two different times I heard that, so look this up on your own, because you, you want to make sure you have your facts completely straight, so I'm not, I'm not saying that is absolutely confirmed, but that's, I've read that twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, crazy, but anyway, okay, the next miracle is... Uh, one that hits very close to home for us, one that we decided on, was Batania, Venezuela. Not only is Batania, Venezuela, as we said, I believe in the last podcast, um, maybe, yeah, last podcast, I think, uh, not only is that where Maria Esperanza saw uh, Our Lady with like a couple hundred other people, and it's the fastest approved apparition of the Blessed Mother, approved in three years, but little less known than that, there's a Eucharistic miracle that happened there, a totally church-approved Eucharistic miracle. So again, God's trying to highlight this apparition spot, Maria Esperanza as a person, and also Our Lady and her messages in Batania. I think he's trying to highlight this because not only was there that apparition, but a totally approved Eucharistic miracle. It happened in 1991. I believe it was December 8th, Feast of the Immaculate Conception. It yeah. was. So a priest was celebrating Mass in the outdoor chapel there that we've been to a few times, um, right outside the grotto where she appeared. And as he was celebrating Mass, he saw, again, a trickle of blood coming off of the Eucharist, or you should say, quote-unquote, an unknown red substance <laughs> coming off the Eucharist. Of course, as always, they had it sent to a lab. It was studied officially. It came out to be human blood authentically. Mm -hmm. Again, amazing happened right there in Batania, 1991 and I, we saw this one not when it happened obviously but we saw this one in Los Tecas Venezuela it's kept in a convent a couple hours away from the capital city of Caracas and you know we the journey to get there was insane like the rain was ridiculous and the bus ride was bumpy and there's cliffs and like we thought we were gonna die <laughs> and then we show up to this convent and there's these all these happy little nuns so happy and like they're just like <laughs> 
kind of like floating around like in ecstasy and like <laughs> welcoming so like happy. all these like random Americans <laughs> that, that are walking around like without not knowing like a lick of Spanish. <laughs> and they show us to this uh, giant chapel. And then when we walked in the chapel where they kept the Eucharistic uh, miracle that was there, they made us take off our shoes. And I remember I thought that was weird because I didn't understand. Like I went to Batania maybe like this happened about one year into my conversion. So like I was still really raw. And I remember, like, I walked in there, I took my shoes off, I kind of knelt down, I saw the host, and I saw, like, the... Because you can kind of still see the stain of blood that was on it. Yeah. I remember I looked at it, and I was like, oh, this is nice. But, like, I didn't, like, <laughs> I didn't get it. Like, if I were to see that now, like, I would have spent, like, an hour of silence at least. Like, you know, like, just staring. But now, but then I was like, all right, that's that's cool. Like, cause my, my faith wasn't deep enough yet. So, like, I wish that I could see it again now, like, knowing what I know now about the Eucharist. Yeah, it is really amazing because after that miracle happened and it was declared an official miracle, they did have it moved to that convent in Los Teques about two hours late, two hours away. And, uh, by the way, that, that Eucharistic host is pretty much, like, incorrupt itself mm-hmm. because it's the exact it looks the exact same. There's no preservative. It's just right there out in the open. Yeah. And it's the exact same as it was, um, you know, 30 years ago when the, when the miracle first happened. And it's pretty cool that it's not a normal monstrance that's holding it. It's like a giant statue of Mary, and, like, Mary's kind of holding it close to her heart. I love like, that. in her hands. Yeah. Right. You know, Mary uh-huh. was, like, the first tabernacle since exactly, she, she, yeah. had, she was pregnant with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that makes perfect sense. Very beautiful situation. And there's a second miracle associated with this first one in Batania, and that is when um, a priest we know very well, uh, who uh, had a big hand in our conversions, Father Maz, uh, we affectionately call him, um, he took a group of students from Rowan University to Venezuela, uh, to Batania. This is in 1998, and uh, he took this group of students to that convent in Los Teques that we went to to see that same Eucharistic host. Apparently what happened is Father Maz celebrated Mass, in front of the uh, the host, and um, and then uh, afterwards, people stayed in the chapel just to pray for a little while. And one of the volunteers, a young man who had come along with the group in the chapel, apparently started pointing, saying, "Look, look, look!" and pointing at the Eucharist. And everyone's like, "What are you What are you pointing at?" You know, he's just obviously pointing at that host that had bled seven years before that was on display. So he's pointing at it, and he's seeing something that clearly nobody else sees. So he had a camcorder on him. He takes out his camcorder and starts to film, and this camcorder actually did receive and did get footage of what he was seeing, which was, it's on YouTube, you can look it mm-hmm. up, a heart that is clearly, like the image of a beating human heart yeah. that is clearly hovering over top of the Eucharist, and it's clear as day. Now, we are very close with the priest who was there in the moment. He said when he, when this guy, his name was Dan Sanford, when he filmed the Eucharist, um, on, on his camcorder immediately this priest walked over to him and looked through the camcorder at the video he had just taken because you know on those old camcorders you could watch yeah. real quick what you just filmed and and that was exactly what he saw there was uh-huh. no doctoring of the film yeah. it was not edited because you know i'm looking at this eucharistic host video and um if you look on youtube i would have said if i was a skeptic oh someone clearly yeah. just photoshopped it uh-huh. but i'm telling you this has been around for like 25 30 years when it was way harder to photoshop things yeah and the same priest, Father Maz, told me they actually had the video sent to an investigative team that mm-hmm. specialized in those things who came back and said that uh, and affirmed yeah. that it was not doctored in any way. That's so, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that last So part. I'm telling you as someone with close connections to the people, uh, if, you look up, yeah, if you look up Bleeding Host Batania or mm-hmm. Bleeding Host Los Teques on YouTube, the video's got like um, probably over a million views now. Yeah. Um, you can find that video. And I'm telling you as someone close to the people who – 
who were there when it happened. Uh, it is completely legitimate and authentic. Uh, and they even had it sent to John Paul II. John Paul II himself saw the video. That's really cool. Yep. And I know that we mentioned this before on the podcast, but Carlo Acutis put together a website of all these Eucharistic miracles. Like maybe we should put the link in the bio yes. to that website. And we'll maybe um, put the link to this video and to Carlo Acutis yeah. as well. And uh, on that a website that Carlo Acutis made shortly before he passed away, I actually wanted to check to see if he found the one in Batania. Because, like, you know, we know Father Maz. We know the people involved. Like, right. I want to know if this was, like, well-known or if this is just something that we knew. So then I looked, lo and behold, there it is. Like, Carlo Acutis himself documented this one as well. <sighs> so then he, if you click on the links that Carlo Acutis made for each different Eucharistic miracle, I don't know who drew pictures of it, but someone drew, like, uh, the people that were involved or, or the setting. It's like a cool-looking poster. Right. So, like, if you click on the one for Britannia, it's funny because you can see someone drew Father Matt. And, he, and, and it's, like, that's yeah. like, you know, I just and talked like, to him today. Exactly. And, like, <laughs> and you can see that, like, someone drew, like, the, the camcorder and, like, the beating heart thing. So it really is two miracles in one in that place. So I strongly encourage you to hit pause on this podcast and go look it up. Yeah, so that's Carlo Cutis' website. We'll put a link in the bot in the, uh, the description. Yeah. And also, if you want to look it up on YouTube, the actual host video that this guy was able to get after father mass had said mass it's called miracle of the eucharistic host dash 1998 if you plug that into youtube it will come right up there's a few videos about it but the most popular is called miracle of the eucharistic host dash 1998 so while you pause and look at that some little filler damn what'd you have for lunch today <laughs> uh i had what did i have i didn't have lunch i don't get to have lunch at all i, I have an extra class this, this so semester you didn't eat no, I had a big. Bre- I, what I do is I have like a breakfast period, so I have like a big breakfast. What'd you have? I had Chick Fil A breakfast. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then I bought yogurt, but I accidentally bought hash browns as well. Mm-hmm. So later on, I saved the yogurt in the fridge at work, and then I ate the yogurt like at, at the end of the day. Did you get chicken for Chick Fil A breakfast or, or I got real I got breakfast? A, I got a, a chicken biscuit. Nice. Yeah, it was good. It was cool. really good. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to eat healthy, but it's a solemnity of Saint Joseph today, yeah, so true. I was able to splurge. <laughs> nice. Uh, I have one last story about this Eucharistic host video, Miracle of the Eucharistic Host. Um, my little brother, when he was three years old, I mean, just turned three, barely three years old, could barely put together lots of you know um, coherent sentences. I showed this video, Miracle of the Eucharistic Host, from Batania, um, to my my family on my desktop computer. And um, he walks over, and he looks at it, and he just kept staring and staring and staring, and he just kept pointing at it and pointing at it. So I helped him up, and he sat on my lap. And when I tell you that my little brother, like I said, at not even – I don't think he was even three. He was probably less than three. At two years old, watched this video on loop, on repeat, for an hour straight over and over again. just kept pointing at the Eucharist over and over. Um, I am not exaggerating. My dad came home from work. Couldn't believe what he was seeing, and then just sat down and watched it on repeat with my with my little brother. And this went on for guys. I'm I'm not exaggerating. Like two and a half hours, three hours. Didn't he keep on saying Jesus too when he was looking at it? But he couldn't say many words. He was saying something like yeah. that, but he just kept pointing at it, yeah. and then over and over again, kept making us put it on repeat, just mm-hmm. staring at it. And it's not like I was like trying to psych him up. He yeah. actually happened to be walking by me, and that's how it started. I didn't yeah. try to you know manufacture this. I didn't try to put uh-huh. him in front of the t- this the computer screen. So uh, that was a really amazing story that happened with my little brother first time he saw this video. So it is the real thing when you watch that video. Okay, number four. This is two individuals who were really holy. Uh, One, her name is Servant of God, Luisa Picaretta. She is on step one out of four to become a saint. And the other is Saint Therese Neumann, who died in 1962. And I believe Luisa Picaretta died in 1942. 
The reason I'm mentioning both of these individuals is because both of these holy women are known to have survived only on the Eucharist, on the Eucharist alone. St. Therese Neumann apparently went from 1922 until 1962 when she passed away eating nothing. I think she had some water, but that's it. That's impossible. Like, you have to eat. Like, you can't, you know. So for our listeners, please don't actually do this. I've always said it to my students, and I think I've mentioned this before in a podcast, so do not, like, starve yourselves, okay? She had a special gift. But she went 40 years only receiving the Eucharist every day. People would say, how are you still alive? You're supposed to be dead. I've been with you for weeks on end. I have not seen you eat anything. She'd be like, oh, you know, I just receive Jesus every day. He keeps me alive. It's like, what? I need to eat like two dinners per night. <laughs> so I can't even imagine that. Second breakfast for the Lord of the Rings yeah. fans, right? Like, I, I was psyched to eat that Chick-fil-A chicken biscuit today. And I'm trying to eat healthy for Lent, right? Again, thank you, St. Joseph. But what I'm trying to say is, I mean, that's amazing. And then Luisa Picaretta, if, as if 40 years wasn't impressive enough, not that like anyone's counting, but Luisa Picaretta apparently went 60 years from 1882 until about 1942, around when she passed away. She apparently, she was bedridden her entire life, just didn't eat anything. She never ate anything. She just had the Eucharist every day and was apparently sustained. And why do you think the Lord, like why specifically this, of all the things the Lord could be doing through these stories, of all the miracles he could be causing through the Eucharist, why is he allowing certain very holy individuals, because they're not the only two, why is he allowing them to have to not eat anything? I think it's just, again, to further confirm what he said in John's gospel, because he said that like this, he said one does not live on bread alone. So it's like the bread that we eat, like the the nutrients that we get from regular food, like, yeah, it might sustain us temporarily, but it's not going to give us eternal life. So the Eucharist is what's going to give us eternal life. So really, it's the only thing that matters. Yeah. So for some elect saints, he lets that nourish them with all the nutrients, like everything that their body would possibly need. Uh, We shouldn't try that, like you just said, because we're probably not called to it. And we're probably not on the level of holiness that they were on. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, yeah. If, if you know that you're going to survive on the Eucharist, you'll just know. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't, don't. it's not something to try at home. Like, if you have that gift, you'll know. And it's really, really rare. So we just going to assume none of the people yeah. in the audience have Ma- this gift. <laughs> maybe try skipping lunch first and then see if you can go 40 years <laughs> with, on just the Eucharist. <laughs> uh, you know what's really ironic, too, is Jesus said one does not live on bread alone. But the Eucharist is Jesus becoming bread. So what is Jesus saying by allowing these saints to live so long? It's he, not just bread. He is the bread. He is the bread, and it's not bread. Like, there was, I just learned one story, and I'm still kind of sketchy on the details. There's something in the gospel where, like, they were traveling somewhere by boat, and they were supposed to bring food, and, like, they only brought one loaf. Like, they only had one loaf of bread, and, like, the apostles were looking at each other like, dude, we didn't bring enough food. And then Jesus was like, what are you talking about? And he was like... I don't know what he said. I kind of just. I think it was the woman at the well. Oh yeah, the woman at the well. Uh huh. Yeah. And then I I forget what happens next, but yeah. (laughs) Um, he said, "I have food you don't know about." Yeah. (laughs) And they're like, "What are you talking about?" He was talking about himself. (laughs) Right. And this was already like he already multiplied the loaves too. I think it's like they already knew that he could do stuff like that. (laughs) Right. Right. It's so funny. Um. Again, so if Jesus literally says you can't live on bread alone. And these two women lived on the Eucharist. It literally means it is not bread. This is God going out of his way to say, this is not bread. This is me. I love you that much. Like, I really want to be one with you. It's not just bread. It's me just taking the form of bread for your sake. And just like the ancestors who ate bread and still died, the manna. Jesus is the new manna. The new manna. He who feeds on me shall live forever. Is it manna or manna? It's It's manna. I think it's manna. Is yeah. it Barabbas or Barabbas? It's it's Barabbas, I think. 
I think it. I think Barabbas. You could say either way, but it's definitely not Mana because that sounds Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now number five. Not that there's anything wrong with being Jamaican, obviously. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it just sounds you like s- you know Yaman. <laughs> if you say bacon, well, no. If you say beer can, <laughs> it sounds like you're saying bacon with a Jamaican accent. Really? I forget. No, I think there's you something. That one up. I messed it up again. I'm that's gonna, okay. I'm just gonna it's, stop. Sorry, right. humility's good. It's late at night. It's all right. Yeah, so with yeah. humility, with humility, you know, we we get holier, and so this is fine. This is good. <laughs> there's <laughs> something that humbles us in every single session. And last but not least, this one's really close to home. Uh, a couple experiences that uh, that we've had um, as youth ministers when we would run retreats. I'll tell you one thing that happened. We're, I was running a high school retreat for the youth group. There's about 35 students on this retreat. We had Eucharistic adoration. And uh, I'm going to say about half, maybe even more than half of these students had never done adoration before. Um, the priest um, led us in Mass and then put the Eucharist out for adoration. We put the lights down in this small chapel, and we put on the Divine Mercy Chaplet in song. And when I tell you these things, I'm not exaggerating. Within minutes, for some reason, the room got warm. I mean, it got really warm really fast. Like, the, the temperature spiked up suddenly. And then everyone in the room started to cry, tears of joy. I mean, when I say everyone, I mean there was almost not a dry eye in there. Everyone started to cry. And like I said, about 20 of these kids, more than half, had never done adoration before. Nothing happened. No one said anything. But the presence of the Eucharist made everyone pretty much cry. People stayed there longer than they needed to. Um, and the room got legitimately hot. I mean, that that's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' presence filling the room. Another thing that happened was at the previous high school I used to work out at, work at, <laughs> not work out at, every year uh, we would bring in a retreat director. And um, every year the students would go in and he would end the retreat with adoration. And I never got to chaperone this part because I was teaching other students of other grades who were on other retreats in the building because he would only take one grade out of the four. So uh, every time these kids would return from the church, they'd be crying and sobbing, and, and kids would come up to me and say, Mr. P, Mr. P, I just had the most amazing experience at, you know, in the church. And I thought, man, this guy must be amazing. This guy must be the best preacher, the best retreat leader ever. And he was a very good holy guy, don't get me wrong. But one year, I actually had the privilege of like being there for all the students who were on his retreat. And he gave some good talks. There was nothing wrong with anything he said, nothing wrong with anything he did, nothing too crazy, but he was a good holy guy. We get over into the church, and I thought, okay, this is where he must, like, give a tearjerker talk. And all he did was just talk about Eucharistic Miracles. He spent about six or seven minutes, that's it, just talking about Lanciano, what we just said in Argentina, and, you know, just how God really loves you, and to just tell God whatever you want. That's pretty much all he said, and that Jesus is really present. The priest comes out, he puts the Eucharist on the altar, and then he just goes to the back of the church just to, he said, if anyone wants to talk to me, I'll pray for you, and you can tell me anything bothering you. He puts the music on, and at first nobody moves. Everyone's just sitting there. Remember, again, this is now about two or 250 kids, and none of them, hardly any of them, had ever been to adoration before. So it's not like they were used to this. And uh, within a matter of minutes, a couple kids go up to the front, and they kneel in front of the Eucharist, and then more come up there, and more go up there. And by the end, almost everyone in that church had voluntarily knelt down in front of the Eucharist, and everybody was crying. And you know what I noticed? It wasn't anything this guy said or did. It was just the presence of Jesus. And that happened one more time at my school that I work at currently. We ran a retreat. Same thing. None of these kids had done Eucharistic Adoration before. There's probably about 250 kids in the auxiliary gym. The priest got the incense out. At first, the kids were just coughing to kind of almost make fun of the incense, right? I was getting upset. I was like, man, you guys shouldn't be doing this. I wanted to yell at them, but something said, don't yell at them. So I paused. The coughing fit ended after five or ten minutes. 
And there's a few minutes of silence. And then one by one, I kid you not, spontaneously, these kids went up there and knelt down. And half the school was just crying by the end of it. Wasn't the, the first kid like someone that was on the football team, like a oh, well-known yeah. kid? Yeah, the first kid yeah. that got up uh, voluntarily from his seat to go closer uh, was like a popular kid on the football team. And then when he went up, a couple other kids like – looked at him and were talking. I thought they were making fun of him, but they were really, I think, were asking each other, do you want to go up too? Mm-hmm. And they followed him up and they knelt down next to him. Yeah. And then I saw three girls get up and I thought, oh, well, they're going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't. They went up there and they knelt to the next to the to the guys and uh, spontaneously, like almost half of the school got up and knelt down in front of Jesus and so many people were crying. You could feel it in the room. The teachers who had never done adoration before, who were chaperoning, they were crying in the back. The vice principal came up to us and said, wow, I did not expect this to happen. I didn't expect this. This is really beautiful. We got to extend this. We had to extend adoration. And at the beginning of the retreat, people said to us, you know, these kids had never done adoration before. They're never going to sit still and pray for 30 minutes. That's too long. We ended up extending it to 45 or 50. We had to tell the kids to go back to their seats in order for us to move on with the retreat so we didn't go over time and the busing schedule got messed up. That is Jesus' true presence in the Eucharist. He does it over and over again, whether it's Eucharistic adoration or during Mass or Eucharistic miracles. He's always doing these things to remind us, yes, yes, it's me. I love you that much. And that's awesome because that experience will stay with those kids probably forever. Forever. Maybe that was the first time they ever experienced adoration. So that's, that's a really good first round of adoration. Oh, yeah. Yep. So we're gonna try to do that again. We haven't. We weren't able to because of COVID for a couple of years, and we're mm-hmm. gonna try to implement it again yep. uh, this upcoming year. So I'm excited for that. All right. That was all five miracles. Again, these are just little signs that God really does love you this much. So please make it to mass on Sundays. Try to get to mass during the week if you can. Uh, clear your mind, clear your heart. Get to confession first, and let the Eucharist truly transform you. When next time you receive the Eucharist, believe truly that Jesus is entering into you, that He's there in your chest after you receive it, right where your heart is burning with you, burning within you, trying to transform your soul from the inside out. However much we are open to Him transforming us, is how much He will. So let's open our hearts as best we can today. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna get to the devotional cup. Right, we are back with the devotional cup segment again. Many different devotions and different apparitions and very Catholic things. Anthony has a random bag of them now because we're down to bag status because there's less and less of them as we discard them. Ant, which one do you draw randomly? The Diary of Saint Faustina. The Diary of Saint Faustina. Love it. Very nice. Love it. Great book. Yeah, you know, really you know what's weird? This is probably from God because I'm taking grad classes right now, and it's really affected my recreational reading. Because all of my reading has been required. Right. Like, and uh, there's hours and hours of reading each week. And my whole life, I was never a big reader. And because of this class, I'm getting a lot better at reading. But actually, (laughs) I noticed yesterday that I haven't read any of my spiritual books recreationally. Like, I'm only reading what I have to read for my class. I haven't picked up a book and just, like, paged through it in months. And I was actually thinking, like, one of the books that I used to pick up every now and then and like get inspirations from is the diary of saint faustina so this is probably god telling me to do that anyway even though i'm doing all kinds of reading just like keep on reading recreationally yeah definitely i know the first off i know the struggle mm-hmm. of uh, having grad classes and not being able to do the mm-hmm. like the reading you want to do the good thing is thank goodness like theology you get some kind of spiritual goodness out of it but yeah. it's not like necessarily the it's writings a little different it's not it's the di- saints it's very writings different. Yeah. yeah it's not the same as like a spiritual reading though mm-hmm. um and the diary of saint faustina is so effective because uh 
in so many different ways. I mean, number one, if anyone goes through spiritual dryness or spiritual tests, the Diary of St. Faustina is perfect because, like, every second page she's going through some kind of spiritual test and telling her spiritual director about it. <laughs> and I like in that book because it's all about, like, what Jesus has said to her when the times that he's appeared to her. And whenever Jesus is speaking, it's in bold. So, like, if you're just in yeah. the mood, if you're just in the mood to see, like, something from Jesus, just flip it open and look for something in bold. <laughs> and you know what really is cool about with the things that Jesus says and also her own reflections is that it really gives you amazing insights into, like, the spiritual world. Like, if you have, like, that mysterious kind of desire to learn about, like, the mystical life and, like, how the soul works, how the spiritual world works and how purgatory works and how graces are worked and how they are dispersed into the soul and whatnot like the diary of saint faustina is perfect perfect to uh, to read very eucharistic as well she was all about the eucharist in fact so many times you know souls in purgatory for instance are like appearing to her and asking you know for communion graces and penances and she's relating everything to the mass and the divine mercy chaplet itself gets its power literally from the mass you know and eternal Father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that atonement is, for our sins and those of the whole world. Thank you very much. <laughs> that is completely Eucharistic. You know, it's really, it centers in on how all the power that the Divine Mercy Chaplet gets, and really kind of all the power that everything the Church does. I mean, that's why the Eucharist is the source and summit, right? Pretty much the source of everything the Church does. It gets its power, that fountain of love and goodness and grace from the Eucharist itself, that eternal sacrifice. Should we put an Amazon link to the book, or is that too much? That's a little much. Yeah, it's a little, a little much. much. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. I mean, like, we're not really sponsored, but I mean, like, not that it's bad to do it, I guess. It's Maybe just, they'll sponsor us. It's a lot of links, though. We got to our third thing. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Less is more. <laughs> I got to tell it to myself when I'm talking, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Diary of St. Faustina. If you're looking for a spiritual reading, especially you know as Lent comes to an end and during Easter, uh, fantastic, fantastic book to read to help you with your spiritual life, to help you with understanding spiritual dryness and tests, and also the Eucharist itself. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right, you want to close with a prayer? Sure. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, as always, I ask that you bless anyone who is listening to this podcast. And Lord, I also ask that you increase our faith. Uh, it's nice that you give us these Eucharistic miracles. Uh, but help us to just trust in that what you say is true and to use this Eucharistic miracle uh, evidence as just added bonuses to help our faith. And Lord, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless. God bless.